Good morning, Fellowship. I want to introduce you to today's speaker, Robbie Painter. Robbie leads the Young Life Ministry at Brentwood High School, and he's the director of Young Life for all of Williamson County. For those of you who aren't familiar with Young Life, picture 200 high school kids from every kind of background crowded into a room, way too small for them, playing ridiculous games, singing at the top of their lungs, and hearing the gospel. That's what happens right here at our barn on Thursday nights where the Brentwood Young Life Group meets. And we are so glad to host them. And we're so grateful for Robbie's leadership and his heart for these students. Robbie's been attending fellowship for more than 20 years. He has partnered with us as one of our local missionaries. He's married to Katie. They have three daughters, Maisie, Winslow, and Rosie. And they attend right here at our Brentwood campus. When Lloyd and I looked ahead at our series to today's passage, we wanted to bring in someone, not only was a great teacher, but someone who embodied the heart of this text. And Robbie immediately came to mind. I know you're gonna enjoy and appreciate what he shares. Please welcome Robbie Painter. Good morning, fellowship. Hey, thank you. I wanna start by acknowledging a thought that probably most of you had watching that video. And that thought was, oh man, a guest speaker, right? It could have been a Sunday that we watched from home. Yeah, I know. But it's too late. You're here. We got you. All right. So let's just all hope for the best, shall we? I guess when Lloyd's on sabbatical, they'll let anybody up here. So good to be here. Honestly, uh, I am humbled. I am nervous. I am honored to get to be on this stage and uh, open the scriptures together with you. When I was in college at the University of Tennessee, go Vols. That's right. That's all I'm going to say. I just said it once. That's all I'm going to say. When I was in college, uh, I was a Young Life leader in college. And so I was in between classes. I was at the Young Life house. My friend Josh was there. And Josh, he was a huge Detroit Tigers baseball fan. And they were playing that night in the World Series against the St. Louis Cardinals in St. Louis. And Josh looked at me, he's like, man, this is my team. We're in the World Series. We gotta go to this game. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, we're two broke college kids. We don't have money to buy a World Series ticket. And they played that night. Josh kind of got a twinkle in his eye and he looked at me and he goes, what if we try to sneak in? How hard could that be? It's just the World Series. And we look it up and we're like, I don't know. The weather's iffy, it might rain. It's an eight hour car ride to St. Louis. We're supposed to be going to class. So we decide, okay, we're gonna make this decision like you make all major decisions in college. Coin flip, all right, heads. We go try to sneak in the World Series. Tails, we go to class. Got the coin, you know where this is going. We flip it, it's heads. We jump in the car off to go try to sneak into the World Series. Eight hours later, we pull into St. Louis. We park the car, it's raining a little bit. And we're like, all right, what's the game plan? How are we gonna do this? You would have thought that we would have spent some of the eight hours in the car ride coming up with a game plan. We did not, we did not. You know, the brain of a college person is not fully formed yet, as many of you are aware. So I go, all right, what if we, here's an idea. Let's just walk around the stadium, see if any doors are unlocked. Genius, right? We walked around the stadium, all the doors were locked. It's the World Series. We're like, man, this is gonna be harder than we thought. So we're walking around. It was a new stadium at the time. So there was some construction on the back of the stadium. 
We might have jumped a fence. It's hard to remember. It's hard to say. We got to the back of the stadium. There was a door with a little window kind of into a stairwell. We look in and there was a guy in the stairwell. We knocked on the window. He looked at us. We kind of smiled and pointed down to the handle and he opened up the door for us. So we now walk into the stadium, but we're in a stairwell, right? There's stairs, like a little door at the top. We're like, okay, we're going to go open this door. There's going to be a ticket line. They're going to kick us out of here. So we kind of go up the stairs. We slowly open up that door and peek in. There was no ticket line. And I'm not kidding when I say we walked into the box level VIP section of the stadium. (laughs) Everyone was in suits. They all had like their ticket laminated with a lanyard around their neck. And we were like, we did it. We snuck in the World Series. And so I go get my hot dog, souvenir beverage, off to go find our seats. And that's when over the intercom, we heard a sentence that made my heart go into my stomach. I'm walking to find my seats over the intercom. Ladies and gentlemen, we regret to inform you that this game has been canceled due to rain. <laughs> yeah, or like all of your tickets will be refunded. Like we don't have tickets, we snuck in. <laughs> and that's it, everyone left. Me and Josh, the final two people to leave the stadium, we sat in these two seats, it was raining on us. Our arms were around each other and we were like, we did it. <laughs> we snuck in the World Series. Didn't get to see a single pitch, but it counts, it counts. You know that feeling like of your, your heart going into your stomach? You, know, you, you hear something that, that just that sinking feeling? As we've arrived at John chapter four, this morning, we're gonna read a story about a woman who heard some words from Jesus actually that sent her heart into her stomach. Let's start together. This is John chapter four, verse one it says this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So the Pharisees are realizing that Jesus' ministry is growing. More and more people are coming out to listen to him, following him, they're baptizing more people. And Jesus being aware of that decides it's time to go, it's time to leave. They're gonna leave Judea in the south and they're gonna go north to Galilee. Uh, And you saw on there, in verse four, it said this, it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. I want you to put a pin in that. We're gonna come back to that in a little bit. The last person that we saw Jesus interact with, encounter, was Nicodemus from chapter three. If you remember that, here's some things about that story on the slide. He was a man, he came at night. He was named, moral, religious, theologically trained, influential. And now here in John chapter four, we are gonna watch Jesus interact with the polar opposite of that. In John four, we have a woman. She comes in the day, unnamed, a moral past, irreligious, uneducated, insignificant. So in John chapter three, we have Jesus interacting with someone at the top of the ladder, the top rung, Nicodemus, a Jewish religious elite. And one chapter later, we have descended to the bottom rung, a Samaritan woman. Commentator Del Bruner says this, Jesus has come for the whole ladder from top to bottom. 
And Jesus is about to give us a masterclass on what it looks like to engage with someone who is living a life disconnected from God, kind of in the dark, searching. How do you engage with someone like that at the bottom of the ladder? John tells us it's the sixth hour, so it's noon. The class bell is ringing, if you would. And let's learn together. Verse seven. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I want you to kind of try to picture this in your mind. Like you're watching it on a movie. This woman comes to the well with her big water jar. She realizes there's a Jewish man there. She doesn't recognize him. So she thinks, okay, I'm just gonna kind of go about my business, not make eye contact, just kind of get my water. Now she's filling up her jar. She hears Jesus say, hey, would you give me a drink? She freezes, her guard goes up, her mind starts racing. Why is he talking to me? What does he want? Am I safe here? So she shoots back, hey, why, why, are, you, why are you talking to me? And John tells us, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Because when Solomon died in the Old Testament and the kingdom was split into the north and south, the northern kingdom was invaded by the Assyrians and they conquered it. So they exiled a bunch of Israelites and they settled the land with some foreigners. The remaining Israelites in the north and those foreigners kind of intermixed, intermarried, combining, mixing cultures, religions, races. As you can imagine, the Israelites in the south, they weren't too happy about that. My oldest daughter and I, uh, Maisie, we've read the Harry Potter series. Any Harry Potter fans out there? Okay, a few of you. There's this phrase, this term uh, in Harry Potter that is called a pure-blood wizard. I know I just lost some of you. Okay, just stick with me. A pure-blood wizard is a wizard who both of their parents are wizards and their parents are wizards and their parents are wizards and so on. They're a pure-blood wizard. Some wizards in Harry Potter, only, only one of their parents is a wizard. The other one is a non-wizard. It's a normal human, also known as a muggle. Some wizards, both of their parents are non-wizards. And the uh, pure-blood wizards, they had this derogatory slur, this word that they would use when talking down to a wizard like that. They would call them mudbloods. They had dirty blood. The pure blood of a wizard mixed with that of a normal human. The Jews, they saw Samaritans as mudbloods. The pure blood of an Israelite mixed with a foreigner. They were dirty, impure, tainted, less than. So this woman says to Jesus, why are you a Jewish pure blood? Talking to me, a Samaritan mudblood, let alone asking me for help. Jesus is knocking down two barriers of the day, right from the, the jump. One, that he would even be talking to a woman in public. Two, a Samaritan woman. John is showing us that Jesus is willing to do whatever it takes to reach his lost sons and daughters because he's after the whole ladder from the pure bloods to the mud bloods. This is how Jesus responds to her. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself 
as did his sons and his livestock. So Jesus is beginning to take the conversation with this woman a little bit deeper. And he does it by appealing to her curiosity. He's like, man, there's something you don't know. But if you knew it, it would change everything for you. If you only knew the gift of God, what is that? No surprise, commentators think different things. Some say it's the law. Some say it's forgiveness, salvation. All of those are certainly gifts from God. They're all wrapped up in a much bigger gift. Bible trivia time. This should be easy because we just talked about this. Fill in the next word. You ready? For God so loved the world that he gave. The greatest gift of all, God himself among us as Jesus and later on as the Holy Spirit. He's saying, hey, if you only knew who you're talking to, you'd be asking me for water and I would give you living water. The woman's confused, right? She's like, wait a second. I thought you were asking me for water. Now you're saying you have water for me? Where are you getting this water? Right? And your water's better than this water? What, what do you think, you're better than Jacob or something? Jesus' appeal to her curiosity, it's working. He's drawing her in, reeling her in. She's confused, but intrigued. So he goes on to say this in verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I love what Jesus is doing here. It is so good. He's taking this normal conversation, right? About a subject that this woman knows well, water, thirst, these trips back and forth to the well. And he's turning it. He's turning it into a conversation about God. He's like, hey, anyone who drinks this water is just going to get thirsty again. They're going to have to keep coming back to this well. You can see the woman just kind of nodding her head. Like, yeah, yeah, I know. He says, but anybody who drinks the water that I give, they'll never thirst again. Not only that, they will become a fountain of living water bubbling up into eternal life. And the woman goes, give me that water. I want that water. Please give it, give it to me. But she's still confused. She's still thinking of this kind of physical external way. She says, hey, if I had that water, I would never get thirsty. I would never have to come back to this well. Give it to me. So now is the time of the conversation when Jesus decides to reveal to her the type of water that he's actually talking about. And to do that, he begins to uh, press ever so gently but firmly on the most tender part of this woman's heart. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband for you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. So Jesus says, hey, go call your husband and come back and we can talk more. And the woman's like, oh, me? 
I, uh, I don't have a husband. You know, Jesus kind of cracks a smile. He's like, yeah, you're right. What you said's true. Then he delivers the line that sends her heart into her stomach. You've had five husbands. And the man you have now, he's not even your husband. Whew, right? John begins, begins to give us a peek into the life of this woman. She's had five husbands. We're not given any more details than that. Maybe all five of them died tragically. Maybe all five of them cheated on her, divorced her, and kicked her to the curb. Or a bitter cocktail of the two that she has had to drink five times. We don't know. We don't know the details. But what we can be confident in is that when this woman thinks of her past, it brings her feelings of pain and shame. Pain over the deaths of a loved one. Shame over infidelity, multiple divorces. And then Jesus says, hey, the man you're sleeping with now, he's not even your husband, which means he's either someone else's husband or they're just not married and they're sleeping together. Now we understand more fully a detail that John slid into the top of the story. This woman is at this well at noon by herself. Maybe some of you know that back in Jesus' time, the women, they would all go fetch water together in the cool of the day. It was a social time, time for them to catch up with each other, talk about what's going on in their life, what's happened in the town, the gossip of the day. But this woman, she no longer feels welcomed in the social scene. She's at the well at the hottest part of the day. So she wouldn't have to deal with the condescending looks, the passive aggressive comments, the judgmental stares. She'd rather just be alone. Pain and shame. There's a book called Under the Banner of Heaven where the author, John Krakauer, he spent years researching the Mormon faith. And he wrote this book, kind of talking about the origins of the faith through the lens of a murder that happened in the Mormon community. The author uh, doesn't believe in God. He's self-proclaimed agnostic. But I want you to hear his final paragraph. It's like a 400-page book. The last paragraph. Listen to what he says. He says, I don't know if God even exists. Nevertheless, I have arrived at an understanding. Most of us yearn to comprehend how we got here and why, which is to say, most of us ache to know the love of our creator. And we will no doubt feel that ache for as long as we happen to be alive. Isn't that fascinating? This guy who doesn't even believe in God is saying, we are all aching to know the love of our creator. To put it in Jesus' metaphor, we all have a deep thirst to know the love of our creator. Not a physical thirst, but a thirst of the heart. That our heart, our thoughts, emotions, desires, choices, they are all thirsting to know the love of our creator. And Jesus is telling this woman, hey, that thirst you feel, that deep thirst has led you to guy after guy after guy. It is a thirst for the love of your creator, for Jesus. And it's no different with us, is it? You know, the thirst we have to be fully known, 
deeply love, to matter. It's a thirst for Jesus. The thirst we have to be successful, to get recognition, to get praise, approval, applause, to climb the ladder, to be the best. It is a thirst for Jesus, a heart thirst to know the love of our creator that's not dependent on our appearance or performance. The thirst we have for more, you know, bigger, better, newer, next, the next phone, the next car, the next job, the next house, the next vacation, the next relationship, the next level of financial freedom. It is a thirst for Jesus, a heart thirst to know the love of our creator that can actually bring contentment in our lives. The thirst that I've had ever since Lloyd asked me if I would speak up here, the thirst for you to like me, to think I'm doing a good job, the thirst for Rob and Lloyd to be proud, even impressed. It is a thirst for Jesus, a heart thirst to know that even if I blow it up here, God will not take his love away from me. He won't do it. You might be wondering, why is Jesus pressing like this? Right? Why is he bringing up her past and things that can make her feel pain and shame? There's a quote from theologian John Stott that says this. Faith is born out of need. Nothing keeps people away from Christ more than their inability to see their need of him or their unwillingness to admit it. Jesus is tapping on the need of this woman's heart. The five men, the man who was in her bed last night, her unquenched thirst, he's saying, I have water for that. My water is for that. If you want to experience this living water bubbling up inside of you into eternal life, all you need is need. All you need is need. Isn't that great news? You know what Jesus doesn't say? Hey, if you want this water, you know who gets this living water? Those who put in the most effort, those who try the hardest, those who are the, the strongest, who can pull themselves up by their bootstraps, those who have the best face, who never make mistakes. No. You know who this living water's for? The thirsty, the thirsty, those who have a need and know it, those who feel like they, they don't have it all together, feel like they don't measure up, those who are in pain, those who are in darkness and confused, those who are hurt, whose hearts have been broken and shattered. Jesus says, my water is for them. That's who gets my water. So if you're here this morning and your heart is heavy, broken by the cruelty of living in a fallen world, if you don't feel like you're good enough or you have what it takes or if you've made a mess of your life, you don't have to cover that up. You don't have to pretend that's not there and push that down. No, that's the very thing Jesus wants you to bring to him. It's the very place he's wanting to meet you in in your thirst, in your need. All you need is need. So Jesus, he is pressing on the need of this woman's heart. And look how she responds. 
the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. All right, so Jesus pressing on the need of this woman, this internal thirst. What does she do? She dodges it, deflects it, right? He's trying to go internal. She goes external with this theological question they had of the day. The Samaritans, they had a temple on Mount Gerizim. The Jews, they had their temple on Mount Moriah. She's like, hey, where's the right temple to worship, huh? This external question. What's, where's the right place to worship God? And I love how Jesus answers. He brings the focus back to the internal. He's like, listen, a time's coming and it's now here. Or which temple? It doesn't matter. That you will worship God in spirit and truth. Back to the heart. You see that? He's saying the location. It's not about the, the location in worship. Worship is an inward drawing, or better said, an, an inward drinking of the love of your creator. The water bubbles up from inside of you. It doesn't bubble up and flow out of a temple. It bubbles up from inside of someone. So he's bringing her focus back to the heart. And here's what she says. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So she's like, hey, listen, when the Messiah gets here, he'll explain all this to me. It's like Jesus leans in, locks eyes with her and essentially says, you're talking to him. You're talking to him. She is face to face with the heart quencher. And this is where Rob and Lloyd told me I had to stop, which feels cruel, right? What a cliffhanger. So spoiler alert, you ready? Spoiler alert. This woman will drink deep of the living water of God's love for her. And she will turn into a fountain of water that will bubble up and spill onto her entire town. But that's next week. As I said in the beginning, Jesus is giving us a masterclass on how do you engage with people who are living disconnected from God, at the bottom of the ladder, who are walking in darkness, not doing what they're supposed to do, maybe don't have a desire for God. How do you engage with those people? I believe there's five things we can learn from Jesus from this text. We'll take them one at a time. We'll move pretty quickly through them. The first is this. He intentionally pursued, met her where she was, Remember that little detail I told you to put a pin in so that Jesus had to go through Samaria? Jesus didn't have to do that. Actually, the more popular route for the Jews back then was to go around Samaria to get to Galilee. Just not even have to deal with them. They'd go around the whole place. But John said, Jesus had to go through Samaria. 
I believe that's because Jesus had a date with a woman at a well. He wouldn't miss it for the world. He pursued her. He sought her out right where she was at a well in the heat of the day. Next, he relationally connected, accepted her as she was. Their whole conversation was so natural, right? He didn't lead with her sin. He didn't go, hey, can you give me a drink of water? But before you do, let's talk about this guy you're sleeping with, right? He didn't lead with condemnation or correction, but with kindness, tenderness. He made her feel valued, gave her dignity, respect. Who knows if she's ever felt like that from another man? Next, he compassionately cared, engaged her story. Jesus was interested in her story, not her mistakes, in her heart, not her behavior. He lived out the old saying, you know, that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And he was proving to her that he cared about her. He patiently clarified, processed alongside her. He went along for the ride, didn't he? That conversation, ups and downs, twists and turns, the dodges, the deflections, the misunderstandings, the confusion. He just went along for the ride. He was patient with her, right? He didn't get angry or like, oh, come on, get it, let's go. How do you not understand by now? He was patient and just processed alongside her. Last one, he continually proclaimed, shared the truth in love. He did not shy away from the truth right, of the truth of this woman, her life, her mistakes, her past. He also didn't shy away from the truth of the gospel and sharing it with his words when the time was right. And he broke down cultural, religious, political barriers to do it. He did it all in love. When I was in high school at, at Brentwood High School, I had much more in common with the woman at the well than Nicodemus. I didn't go to church. I didn't have this desire to live a godly life or pursue him. I was much more interested in Friday nights than Sunday mornings, if you know what I mean. But then a man from this church, from this church, he didn't work here. This was just his church home. He stepped into my life. His name was Jason Swain. He was a young life leader at Brentwood High School. And he began to live out for me these five things in my life. He met me where I was. He met me at my freshman basketball practice. He wasn't a coach. You know who goes to freshman basketball practices? No one, no one, but he did. Because I believe God put it on his heart that day. He had to go to that practice, he had to because God knew I was there and I was thirsty. He accepted me as I was. My language was foul. My jokes were inappropriate. He never encouraged that, but he certainly never made me feel shunned or looked down on because of it. I could be myself around him. I didn't have to act like I was different. I could talk how I talked. I could explain what I did that weekend to him. I didn't have to cover any of that up. I could be me in his presence. 
He engaged my story. Back when I was in high school, you had your home phone. Then you could pay a little extra. You get a little caller ID next to it. It's a big deal, real big deal. I can remember multiple times my home phone ringing, running up to that, looking on that caller ID and seeing Jason Swain. He was calling for me. He was calling for me just to talk, to hear how my weekend was, what I thought about the football game. He would write me notes. He would mail me a little encouragement, the original text message. He was the first Christian man to take an interest in me and my rowdy friends. He processed alongside me. He gave me a Bible. He put a little note card in it. He said, hey, let's read John together. When you have a question, just write it on this note card. I filled that thing up. I had so many questions. I sit on his couch. I bring it out. We just go one question at a time. He was so patient with me. But more so, he was patient with my continued failings, my continued mess-ups, my trips and falls. He never, he never gave up on me, even when my actions weren't so great. He shared the truth in love. The fountain of living water that was in him was bubbling, bubbling. And it began to trickle ever so slowly onto my thirsty heart. At a Young Life camp, Sharp Top Cove, I heard the gospel in a way that all clicked. All that he'd been doing for me, talking to me about it, all just clicked in place. And I drank deep of the living water of the love of my creator. And I started my relationship with Jesus. Swain started bringing me to this church. He began to disciple me. He began to give me vision for my friends who didn't know Jesus, for my classmates. He's saying, you can be a fountain of living water for them. It's like, I can now? In high school? You can. And I'm so grateful that he called me to that. What does it look like for us as a church? When I say us, I don't, I'm not just talking about Rob and Lloyd. I'm talking about us. I'm just one of you. What does it look like for us to be fountains of living water for our community, to live out these five things to people in our paths. I feel like as a church, fellowship is going to naturally draw in the Nicodemuses of Williamson County, those who've maybe grown up in church, have a background in the faith, those who are hungry and wanting to grow in the relationship with Jesus and get closer to him. And that is so important. But I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of a church that also spends time at wells, that scatters in the community, spending time around thirsty people, people who are walking in darkness, making bad decisions, people who are trapped in sin, people who are rebelling against God, people who don't think like us or act like us. And y'all, that can, that can be really messy, I know. But Jesus always moved towards messes and messy people because it's hard to offer living water 
to those we're not around, right? So may God give us eyes to see people he is already placing in our paths who are thirsting for this water and searching in all the wrong places. Maybe it's a coworker, an employee or a boss. Maybe it's a, one of your kid's teachers or a mom whose kid your kid has playdates with. Maybe it's a classmate, a babysitter, a dad you coach a sport with, a family member. There are so many people in our community that are just waiting, waiting for someone to take an interest in them, to move towards them, to befriend them, to ask them questions, to genuinely care about them. And in so doing, pointing them to this living water. But I want to, I don't want us to miss this. Before we can focus on their hearts, it starts with ours. Our hearts must first be quenched and continually quenched by the living water found in the bottomless well of the love of Jesus. So how is your heart today? Do you have any kind of hidden need or thirst you've been covering up that you just need to bring to Jesus? Do you know the love of your creator in such a real and intimate and personal way that your heart is being quenched? Because that is Jesus's offer for anyone and for everyone. If it's for the woman, it's for us. So maybe this morning, for the first time or the first time in a long time, you just need to drink Take a big gulp of that living water and let that living water into all the cracks and broken places of your heart. God is crazy about you. He's crazy about you. And his living water is bottomless. Come and drink and keep drinking and keep drinking. I'm almost done, um, I promise. As the band comes out uh, to close us in song, um, I want to, I don't want us to miss, really what I've, I've been thinking about, I haven't been able to get past this one line in that book, that last sentence of the whole book that said this, you know, we're all aching to know the love of our creator. It says, we will no doubt feel that ache for as long as we happen to be alive. <sighs> How sad is that? I pray that God would send someone into that author's life to step into his life, to earn the right to tell him it doesn't have to be that way. There is a water that quenches that ache, takes it away. And likewise, I pray that God would send us as fountains of living water to those he is putting in our paths who are thirsting to know the love of their creator, whether they know it or not. Who might that be for you? Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this story.
for the truth that you have come for the whole ladder from top to bottom and that in you we can find living water water that quenches the ache we all have to know your great love for us thank you that you're not just here for the Nicodemuses but for those who are thirsty around a well Lord, would you help us to take a big drink and continually drink from your living water and turn us into fountains of water for those who are thirsty around us. We pray all this in your name. Amen.